at SifPop. We're your movie friends. But are friends really friends? If you don't know them, so grab a popcorn and head over to our row so we can chat movies like friends do. There's always room for more movie friends. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the writer's room. Hello, welcome to Sip Pop Writer's Room. I'm your host, Aaron, but not that Aaron, of course. And this week, I'm joined by Sip Pop Writer Heath. Hello. We have a special episode today uh, doing something a little different. Uh, due to kind of some scheduling conflicts um, and, and mishaps there, you know, it's bound to happen every once in a while. I'm honestly just surprised it took 127 episodes for it to happen because I've only missed one week, and that was when I didn't have a voice, and it's hard to podcast when you don't have a voice. So um, I'm just I'm happy that it's taken this long for it to finally happen. But it is. Um, Heath is our writer. He does the um, Oscars What If segments, um, get re- giving out awards that should be at the Oscars. Yes, correct. Things like uh, stunts and choreography or best ensemble that, for whatever reason, the Academy doesn't want to do, even though they yeah. should. Yeah, and they don't want to acknowledge them, but we do. So he's been doing all the heavy lifting, um, looking at all those back from, uh, I think the first year was 1980, right? No, I've been, I started with 1975. That's right. Cause, yeah, that's right. Uh, working on you're in the, the 80s films now. of 83 right now uh so by the end of this month uh for the oscars of 84 that article will be out plus just regular reviews and stuff i do yeah yeah yep so um a little so a little bit different episodes today we're gonna give you two uh three quick coming attractions uh and then we'll do a black panther wakanda forever um review we'll start off completely spoil free and then we'll give a warning uh, and then the rest of the episode will just be giving our spoiler thoughts on black panther wakanda forever so yeah so no worries if you haven't seen the movie yet but if you want two more white guys opinions on black panther (laughs) you came to the right place um but we'll get there later let's do um let's start off with the movies uh we have the menu she said and bones and all heath which one would you like to start with let's do the menu first menu this is uh, a new movie coming out it's already premiered at lots of different festivals um lots of good lots of buzz but it's finally going to be available for us normies um this week <laughs> starring anya taylor joy ray fines nicholas holt uh john Leguizamo, uh paul adelson uh, quite a few recognizable faces and names in here uh, plenty of people that i like i'm like oh that guy you know him so directed by mark myloid myloid man Mark Milod, I'll say, why not? Will Tracy and Seth Reese doing the screenplay here. Um, a young couple travels to a remote island to eat at an exclusive restaurant where the chef has prepared a lavish menu with some shocking surprises. Uh, Heath, we're, uh, we're going to say this is a, I, I think this is a wide release this week. Um, I could be wrong. I see, I have no indication that it's going to be any different. You know, we're, we're taking budgets, schedules, everything out of the equation, um, except for your own free will. When do you think you would check this out? Would you go check it out in theaters, wait till you can rent it at home, wait till it's on a streaming service you already pay for, or are you just not interested in seeing this one? I am hardcore check this out in theaters. I would do opening night if possible. Um, from a logistic standpoint, it will just come down to when me and my wife can see it. But if I had my druthers, I'd see this immediately. This looks so right up my alley. I want to see this movie so badly. Yeah, I'll say the same thing, too. Um, very excited to see this one. Um, I think I'll just go see it as soon as I can. I mean, my schedule has been weird recently. And especially my theaters around me, I don't know if this is the same around you, but other than weekends, like they don't really open. They, they've they had severely limited hours now. So it's like the first showing I can get to on like a Monday is like four o'clock. And like, that's fine. 
for normal people hours, but I don't work normal people <laughs> hours. And especially like if it's going to be after four o'clock, it's got to be a movie that my wife also wants to see. Yeah. So like I miss 11 o'clock movies so well, badly. I, I don't have that problem. I do live in a much bigger city than you though. So <laughs> I have that going True. for me. So I, I have a lot more theaters and a lot more show times, but yeah, I, uh, I might have to sneak away and see this uh, at some point during the week. Just like take a long lunch and just go go to a theater and see this because God, I'm excited for it. It looks it just looks so crazy and fun, and I, I want it. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, like I said. If I could catch like an 11 a.m., I would just love that. Yeah. It, it, it oh, it does look like some places are like starting one o'clock. That's Friday though. Friday doesn't really count. <laughs> But I, I do have Saturday morning actually off this week, actually. Maybe I'll go get around. Even Saturday morning, there's not a showing anywhere near me before 1 a.m. And it's like, or 1 p.m. Like, why is there not 11 a.m. on Saturday, you know? I can't make it. A, I can't make a 1 o'clock work. I have to be somewhere. At three. Dang it. I hate this. Move to a bigger city. That's the solution. That's the solution. Actually, Just pick up your life and move. <laughs> we currently have, I have two theaters that are really close to me that are chains. I have an indie and then um, in a town 20 minutes away, that's a bigger town. Um, there's a couple of theaters that I semi-regularly go up there to go check out movies. But my town is also getting a like 18 screen with an IMAX. So like, Ooh, nice. there's definitely be more competition, which I think might bring things back to, um, to that. And unfortunately, none of them have any sort of subscription service. So <laughs> um, that's yeah. not really helping out on that front, but. Yeah, as much as I live in a bigger city, all the, in my city there's a couple chains. The big like traditional chain is AMC that has mm-hmm. a subscription service, but all the ones in my proximity as to where I am in the city are Marcus Theaters. Yep. And unfortunately Marcus does not have a subscription service, which drives well, me nuts. Well, they do, it just sucks. They it's do. Like, yeah, it's it's like 8.99 a month and you get one regular ticket per month. Oh no, that's, that's not even a, that's a, that's just a movie ticket. That's that's right. It's very similar to Cinemarks, um, which is, or maybe not Cinemark, uh, yeah, Cinemark. I do know that we're supposed to be getting an Alamo draft house here soon, which is really exciting. Um, but Uh, it's not open yet. Yeah. Our, the one that we're getting soon is a Palms theater, which is a, like Iowa, like it'll be their second location. So it's, it sucks, man. Cause I think if one of them had a subscription service, they would see a boost in numbers and maybe that means they could open up more. But even my indie theater, like they just don't do weekday mornings. And like, I understand why most people work regular shifts, but for people like me that work odd shifts that are movie fans, it sucks. So anyway, I would really like to see this movie as soon as I possibly can. Yep. Although um, we'll, we'll talk about it. We will talk about at the end of like, if you only have a chance to see one this weekend, which you're going to, We'll we'll kind of do that at the end, I think, because that would I think that's a fun thought experiment. Like if you had to rank in priority, but yeah, it's Ray Fiennes is is peak career. He's never really had a slump, I don't think, which is remarkable considering somebody of his like tenure, right? Would be yeah, he's been doing this for decades. Yeah, and he's like never had a period where you're like, oh yeah, he never really had a good movie in this era. Like he's always has. Um, Anya Taylor Joy has been excellent in everything she's been in for the last. X Men: New Mutants isn't a good movie, but she's good in it. Um, she's having I mean, a great Anya, career. Really, you'd have to thank the Queen's Gambit that really put her on the scene in a big way. But uh, there's other work that she's done outside of that. But really, I would say since the pandemic, since Queen's Gambit, in the last two years, you started to see her 
everywhere and she is certainly making the most of it and uh, i i like watching her work and i want to see her do more stuff so between the two of them and i also am a fan of nicholas holt i think he's great and very underrated so Mm -hmm. i'm excited for this it looks good it's this weird zany thriller horror psychological mess and i'm all about it yeah yeah i think you're right i think that queen's gambit is the the blowing up point because i think yep uh, hardcore movie people like the witch came out and that was one of her first roles but that wasn't yeah. a very popular movie and then split wound up like introducing i think a lot of people Split but... is where i i found her and i went back and saw uh the witch the vavitch yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah i i would think it was really queen's gambit when i started hearing her name out of other people's mouths on a yeah. regular basis yeah that's a good point and you know especially because split is you know a thriller and a psychological horror kind of in a way you know definitely at least marketed that way yeah that would be queen's game it feels like the yeah like where you hear other people think about it so but if you think about it like in the last year like calendar year she's done amsterdam the menu the northmen and last night in soho Mm -hmm. all in like one year that's that's a pretty pretty solid run yeah i mean I don't think anybody liked Amsterdam. I haven't seen it. Oh, I didn't like Amsterdam. But but yes, that is a feat. It is a feat to be in that movie. Yeah, to be in a movie of that, you know, Amsterdam may may have been a failure of a movie, but that was going into it. A lot of people thought, ooh, this could be something. It's David O. Russell. This is a large ensemble cast. So that one's a flop in terms of the quality, but like it had a lot of clout going into it. But then the menu's getting a lot of hot buzz. The Northmen, a lot of people liked. Mm-hmm. Last night in Soho has a little bit of a mixed reaction. Some people don't like how it ended, but still, overall, I think almost everyone agrees it was still very, very visually interesting at the bare minimum. Like she's been doing some solid, solid stuff here. Yeah, let's move on to Bones and All. Mm-hmm. This because this is another awards contender. Apparently, I'm just finding out about this movie. <laughs> Marin, a young woman, learns how to survive on the margins of society. Starring Taylor Russell as Marin, um, also starring Timothy Chalamet and Mark Rylance would be the other big names. Again, a decent amount of people that it's like, oh, that person. And uh, based on the novel, same scale. Uh, what do you think about this movie? I would like to see this one in theaters, but this is more of a, a matinee kind of for me. I'll, I'll, I, I'm not in a rush to see it, but I do want to see it on the on the big screen. Okay. Yeah, I, I know next to nothing about this movie. I know that... Um, I was told cannibalism is a is a part of this movie um, yes. by Heath beforehand. So you know, yeah, that's... so for those who aren't as familiar, uh, this debuted in the festival circuit earlier this year. It got a lot of standing ovations and a lot of uh, acclaim for it. It is quite controversial. It is literally about cannibalism. You will see people eat people, hence the title Bones and All, like you eat their bones and all. But it's made by the same director and his first name is Luca. I'm not going to try to pronounce his last name. I'm going to butcher it. But this is the same director who did the remake of Suspiria uh, mm. about half a decade ago. He also did Call Me By Your Name, which was a Best Picture nominated film. It stars Timothy Chalamet. Mark Rylance is in this. There's This movie has a lot going for it. And it's definitely a weird movie. Uh, go watch the trailer. It is quite, quite messed up. But if you want uh, an off-the-wall kind of horror it it even plays into like a romance at some points kind of movie uh this is this is gonna be your oddball film of the year that might get some awards buzz so uh, with the caveat of i've only ever heard of this movie five minutes before we pushed record (laughs) i think i'm gonna go ahead and say with another asterisk of any movie that gets awards attention i'm gonna try to check out 
Um, so those two caveats. I, I just think I'm not interested in this movie. And the main reason being, I just don't get Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> I don't understand the world obsession with him. Um, I don't <laughs> understand why everybody is just like I, I don't understand why he's a lauded actor and i mean I, I look i'm not a i'm not a like teenage girl so i don't i don't you know want to to i, I don't <laughs> i don't i, I just i don't have the same going down this road your, i don't have the same interest. with this film not cannibalism totally cool with that but it's it's that chalamet character i swear to god that kid i'm not look, awesome <laughs> i'm not Obviously, I'm not for cannibalism. <laughs> I know you're not. It's just funny. That, that's and, the, no, it, that's but in terms point. of movie, like you know, thing, things can be used at, for for plot purposes and to be interesting and unique. And, you know, Silence of the Lambs is one of the best movies ever made that features cannibalism. You know, um, yep, it's definitely the best movie ever made that features cannibalism. But um, you know, it's one of the best ever movie ever made. Period, and it features cannibalism. Uh, but it's just one of those like I'm not a teenage girl, so I don't see the like you know oh, he's really cute or quirky or whatever. It's just like every time he appears, like I feel like he was in Call Me By Your Name and then everybody, like like everybody just kind of got on board with him because that seemed to be like, it was a film fan, but but it was also like, here's two hot dudes that are, and so like a lot of like normal people, non-film yeah. people saw that movie too. And so it just seemed like he blew up and then was just like, you know, um, well, I don't know how many non-film people saw Call Me By Your Name. That wasn't like a, a popular film. But I will I will say that I think I think what's going for Timothy Chalamet is, one, he's definitely got a very unique look to him. He's Like mm-hmm. his jawline is insane. Mm-hmm. And he's young. He's got the suave hair. And I do think he's also a very talented actor. I think he has quite the potential to be uh, an awards darling in the next decade but he's also I, done some frustrating thing too like i think he has the talent i just well i think right. i think what helps him is that he's already been in some big projects and worked with some yes. real prestige yeah. names so he did call me by your name that was probably where he got his biggest push in terms of like oh he can really act act but like his first real role was in interstellar he was mm-hmm. He was uh, in Nolan's Interstellar. Uh, I loved him. I first saw him in Lady Bird. I thought he was great there mm-hmm. as a romantic romantic interest for Saoirse Ronan. He had a quirky role in the French Dispatch, a Wes Anderson film last year. Well, so, so here's the thing too: is like um, his his works I'm most familiar with. I've seen I've seen Little Women, French Dispatch, Dune, Don't Look Up from his filmography. Yeah, and I was just gonna say the big ones are probably last year's Don't Look Up, and especially Dune, and then a couple years, yeah. a few years back, Little Women. So, like, he's already worked with some big names, big actors, big directors, like. Well, and I, so I look at in, his, like he would have to really screw up his career at this point to not have a a, a high high point yeah. career moving forward. Well, I look at his those four films that I've seen of him in, and um, he is my least favorite part of Don't Look Up, a movie that I personally love. I hate mm-hmm. the part the parts that he's in it. It just is a completely different movie, and I didn't vibe with it at all. Um, and it's completely unfunny the moments that he the the scenes that he's in would. And the rest of the movie is hilarious to me. Sure. Uh, he's in my least favorite segment of the French Dispatch. Um, I mean, to me, I really like the Leah Sadu and uh, Benicio Del Toro segment. And Yeah, I, that was my favorite segment. I well. thought the other ones were fine. Um, but uh, yeah, the Timothy Chalamet-led one I thought was the weakest to me. And I mean, he's kind of 
charming, handsome young boy down the street in Little Women, and I don't have fondness for that story. And so I thought the movie was good. Um, but I, I loved Little Women. I, I thought Greta Gerwig's interpretation of that story, uh, how she played with the timeline, was one of the most original ways we've seen that story told. It's been done many times before. It but also like helps them he have such talented people as like Florence Pugh and Sarah Sharona in it. But I actually thought Timothy was great in that as Laurie. Um, I thought he played the heartthrob well. In fact, he's kind of started his career by playing a heartthrob, even jokingly in the French Dispatch. He was kind of a, a sure a making fun of himself in that regard. But like again, my first experience with him was in Lady Bird, where he was the fantasy kind of boyfriend for Sarah Ronan, who eventually turned out to be the predictable douchebag. But I thought he was tremendous in that, and I really like him in Dune. I think he is great as. Paul Atreides. Uh, I'm so excited for Dune Part Two uh, to see what he can do with that role. I've liked him think, most. I think in, in Dune. many ways, Dune Part Two will either make or break his career. Not that it will really break it in terms of like, oh, he doesn't get work anymore. But like, if he he, he might not Dune get another block out of the park. If he knocks Dune Part Two out of the park, like he is set. He can just pretty much do whatever he wants at that point. Probably, but but if Dune Two somehow winds up flopping, he probably won't be in another blockbuster for a long time. Yep. But I, I don't like I I've what I've seen from him. I've liked the best in Dune, but also like it's been a while since it's been since Oscars last year that I've seen Dune. But I. But now you can see Bones I, and all and see how he is in this. <laughs> I think anybody could have played him in Dune, and yeah, we'll leave it at that. It, sure. Anyway, the point is, I feel like a lot of this movie hinges on like it's it's star power and i don't care about its star so again two asterisks of it's award season so i'll probably get around to checking it out because it's apparently is up for a lot of things and i don't know anything about this movie other, other than timothy chalamet and mark rylance and like so i'm sure. more intrigued that mark rylance is in it because that dude has a career so our third movie coming out this week is she said the new york times reporters megan twohey and uh jody K- cantor break one of the most important stories in the generation a story that helped launch the me too movement and shatter decades of silence on the subject of, of sexual assault in hollywood but of course based off a new york times article um that came out and really broke um the the the, the harvey weinstein story carrie mulligan leading this zoe kazan um audrey brower patricia clarkson um a relatively like really solid top four um lots of um uh lots of good talent in there this is yeah the story of it this movie feels like spotlight but for harvey weinstein um i think is the right way to put it i'm gonna kick us off with a okay this is the movie that i want to see the most this weekend okay but also this is a movie i can't understand why it's made a feature film as opposed to a documentary that's the biggest thing that I can't get around to is why on earth wasn't this a documentary? Why do they feel the need to do a screenplay? Uh, but I think th- this is the movie that I'm most excited to see. The trailer came on before um, I saw See How They Run. And I was like, yeah, I want to see that one as soon as I can. And yeah. Heath, what about you? I want to see this also in theaters. Um, kind of like Bones and All. I'm not in the rush to see this. I don't need to see it opening night or opening weekend. Uh, but I still very much want to see it in theaters. So full disclosure, uh, this is one of my favorite types of film. My favorite Mm -hmm. genre is whodunit murder mysteries, but right up there, either my number two or number three favorite genre is a journalistic investigation. Mm -hmm. Spotlight is my second favorite movie of all time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love all the president's men. I love the post. Like this is just my jam. 
Zodiac. So I am all excited for that type of film. One thing that I will say that slightly detracts me from it is, and it's nothing actually against the film itself. It's the timeline when making these kinds of movies, I like a little bit more distance from the event. One of the few exceptions to that is all the president's men, which was made in 76 and Watergate was like in 72. So that was a quick, quick turnaround. I think Deepwater but, Horizon was actually one. Of, I mean, it's not an investigative like, movie, but I was surprised. The spotlight how well came out was. in 2015, and that scandal was in like 2001, 2002. Yeah. You know, the, the post Spielberg made that in like 2017, and that that scandal, the Panama Papers, that was before Watergate. Right, right. <laughs> so, uh, I definitely think this is an important story. I don't want to minimize that in any way, shape, or form. I am excited to see this movie. It's. I'm sure it's going to move me. It's very heavy odds that it will bring me to tears at some point. I just wish that we'd given this a couple more years uh, because it still feels like, again, I know that this is specifically about the Harvey Weinstein yeah. uh, story, um, but the me too movement in general, in some ways still feels like it's ongoing. So it feels like, mm-hmm. like we're not done with the, living it yet and, and people coming to terms with it. So yeah, and, why are we I mean, making a movie out of it? I kind of felt the same way about. Time. Yeah, yeah. Like I kind like of felt the same way about Bombshell when that came out. Was that mm. like a year or two ago uh, about yeah, the too. the sexual assault at mm-hmm. Fox News? Again, same thing. It's like that just happened, and I know that he got ousted from Fox News and all that. But it's like you know we're we're still feeling some of the ramifications of these things, and I just wish we'd given them a little bit more breath before diving into hey let's profit by making a feature film out of it. It just, it feels kind of icky, but that's in no way, shape or form a diss at this story itself. It's incredibly important. I'm excited to see it again. <laughs> Journalists investigating things is right up my alley. I'm all about it. I want to see it. I, I love Carrie Mulligan. Uh, I've been a fan of her for a long time. And then with promising young woman, I was just like, Oh, okay, well, I'm just going to see everything that you come out with from now on. Cause like, you're just yeah. amazing. And I, I love watching you on the screen. So uh, I'm, I am excited for it. I, don't get me wrong. I did a quick Google search just to see documentaries about the Me Too movement. And it looks like there's three, um, but one of them is called on the record from HBO. And that's specifically in the music industry, um, which I heard good things about that one, but that doesn't really count. I mean, it, it kind of counts because it's pop culture, but we're talking more of film TV. Um, yeah where it got the most publicity and then there's a there's one called beyond boundaries that it has a really bad imdb score. there is one called the reckoning hollywood's worst kept secret that has a decent imdb score it's only got 120 votes though so like it, my, my point being like how how on earth is there not already been a documentary covering at least the start and I, I agree with you it feels too soon for this movie to be made again i feel like documentaries are much easier i mean it's weird because there's a lot more prep work that has to come into you a lot more information um but and certainly a lot of post-production but you know very labor intensive but like it it almost feels like especially if the story is supposed to end with you know kind of that first domino falling like that that has been several years now and uh i so I, i agree with you it feels too soon i i wonder though if this movie like if the end is finally somebody willing to go on the record about Harvey Weinstein. Then, I, mean, I mean, I would imagine that the movie, maybe not in the actual film itself, but the postscript is at least at bare minimum should mention that Weinstein is in jail. Like that, that yeah. should, that should be how this movie ends. 
and he was only sentenced to jail in 2020. That was just two years ago. So, mm. so that's, that's the, again, that's the only reason why I say like, it feels like, it feels like the story is just now wrapping up. And if they made the, if the movie's coming out now, I'm assuming they've been working on it for the last 18 months, maybe two years. Sure. And in which case they were probably making this movie as the Weinstein trials were happening. And I'm just like, well, and that, that's were, what I'm talking about. Like the, the rush to commercialize this, to make money off of it by making a movie about it. Like let's, let's wait a few years to make sure that the story is fully told. Yes. And I say that well, even from the victim's perspective, like I, you know, I'm sure it was incredibly painful for so many of these women, for so many of these things to come out to the public light, but that they were empowered to do it because so many of these women were coming together as a united front. And it was a beautiful thing. But at the same time, like, damn, they just went through all that trauma and reliving all these horrible moments. And now we're going to make a movie about it. Like before the trials even concluded, they were writing a script for this like that. That's the part that feels icky to me. Well, and they're still pending like consequences to happen here too right like sure like the big thing is he he's going to prison for his crimes but like i I think there's still lawsuits open and not only that but like his 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 consequences are far from fulfilled like he's going to be bankrupt and he's going to have to sell off pretty much all of his anything worth the value um including his rights to dogma (laughs) but yeah it looks like production of this film started in 2017 that's like literally when all of this was happening well but i wonder if they're considering because this is based off of the new york times article if they're considering the new york times article as like being published as the script as the script i mean i I, again i haven't seen the movie but i would imagine that if if it plays like most other journalist movies if it plays like spotlight if it plays like all the president's men it will be they get an inkling of the story and then 95% of the movie is them investigating the story. And then in the final five to 10 minutes, we have them publishing the initial story and then we get a postscript as to what happened afterwards. So and that should be the way to do it too. And that, that should be the like way the right to do way. it because the story is about them investigating everything that happened. So that means that the article that broke in, I think it was 2017 again, when they started production on this. And again, that's the part that feels icky to me is they started production as soon as the article went live. But if that's when the movie ends, I would imagine we get a postscript that says like this article came out in 2017, uh, the X amount of women spoke out against Harvey. He was arrested on this date. He was sentenced on this date. Uh, he was, he's serving X amount of years in prison. I d- I think if if production legitimately begins in 2017, sure, it feels a little icky. But I just wonder, like, again, is it the article being published? Is it a studio purchasing the movie rights to make the story, like, to, to make this into a film? Like, it, 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 any one of any number of things could be considered the start of production. You know, not hiring somebody to start writing a screenplay about yeah so but again and and it could and this article i'm reading could be wrong it maybe it didn't start in 2017 and they're just misrepresenting or misquoting that it was the article they're referring to that was written in 2017 and they started production later so i want to give that caveat that i might be reading this wrong but but you're right it still does feel a little too soon it just it just feels short i wish they'd given it a few more years uh to and again it's it's not that i don't want this story told it's an incredibly important story i want it told i just don't want it commercialized so quickly after so many women went through so much trauma and were willing to put themselves out on the line to make sure that this disgusting demon of a man was put away in jail well and all right so 
so so the biggest thing for me about documentary over feature film at this point is because it's still so early. And the thing about documentaries is they are so rooted in fact. Um, they're especially the documentary. I would actually have no problem with the documentary coming out this quick. Yeah. Not a, not a, not a problem at all, especially because now the the way documentaries should be done is to present you facts and to let you draw your own conclusions. The way that documentaries have been since Michael Moore started making them are, you know, here are facts. And also I'm going to really tell you what you should think of this. And a lot of people have, you know, copied that style. And there's nothing wrong with that when there is a clear like way to think about something as there should be about at least some of the cases um, you know, like I think definitively like those that have pled guilty to, to charges they've been you know accused of um, and definitely those that have been on trial, trial and proven guilty in court. Um, you know, I still believe in the justice system overall. Uh, like I like I think it would be a really bad move if 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 the postscript if the postscript included people who were accused and are later found like innocent. Um, I think that would be a really bad move. And I don't think they'll make that move. I think they'll just say, no, like, it inspired if, if this. they're smart, and I'm assuming that they are, they'll just keep this strictly to Weinstein. Well, but, they, if, but I think in the post they, they could mention, like... If they mention other people, they might just, without naming names, they might just say, this brought out, you know, more yeah. women who were able to speak up and felt empowered by this article. And several other Hollywood producers and executives were called out and whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So, but so the other thing about documentary versus um, versus you know film is film has to have the cinematic qualities. Um, film has to has to dramatize everything. I mean, you yes. look at I, I think a really good example in recent memory, a film that I love, Argo, um, Best Picture winner, twenty twelve. Like they the ending of that movie is so dramatized, where like there's these people who are fleeing the country and they're. And you know, they're it, stopped it, at the security in the they're airport. They're stopped at security in the airport, right? But and then you like look and people recounting their stories, and it's like nobody knew what was happening until they were already like well into safe territory. Then people start yep. getting suspicious. So it's like th- the problem with that is that takes away from reality, and a lot of people will start to associate the film with reality, and yep. they're and it's the problem is it's a dramatized version of the truth, and I feel like a, a subject like this truth should conquer all um and so that's why i think again documentary needing to be rooted in facts not facts plus we got to have our climax here and we've got to have let's add an extra tension here and why not you know let's want to throw in this extra relational dynamic that may not actually be true for let's say the person that's investigating is with an abuser so i I have no idea and i if that winds up being the case and it is truth and i'm going to sound like an asshole but um, you know, like it, it just think that like, I, I'm, I'm fearful of certain elements being over dramatized in a negative way. I think, I think the truth is dra- is dramatic enough. Yeah. And, and again, to be clear, I'm still really excited for this movie and I really want to see it. And I think this is an incredibly important story that needs to be told. I just don't know if we needed this right now. I think this same exact movie in 2024 is probably a lot more appealing to not just me, but probably a lot more audiences would be True. my guess. So uh, either way, like I said, it, to me, it would be this movie is the one I'm most excited about. Yeah. And then the menu and then um, uh, the, the, the lovely bones, you know? So, so for <laughs> me, it's, <laughs> for me, it's the menu is number one by a mile. Um, and then it's, she said, and then bones and all. Yeah. Cool. Well, there you go. You go see the menu. I'll go see, she said, and then we'll compare notes. Uh, yep. Cause odds are, I will have a chance to see one of them. This, you know, 
Uh, like I said, I'm really. I'll try to see it. all three, and I'll probably fail and see none of them. It'll be awesome. Spectacular. Uh, yep. Well, let's move on to the meat of our show. Then we'll give some thoughts on a movie that is already out. We'll talk a little bit about Black Panther: Wakanda Forever. Um, the idea is, that it, you know, that this is supposed to be like one of the like reviews that I spontaneously publish when I feel like talking about a movie. But I, I, again, just with scheduling conflicts, I wanted to have something in the feed. So um, here's a Black Panther: Wakanda Forever review. We will start off completely spoiler-free. The people of Wakanda fight to protect their home from intervening world powers as they mourn the death of T'Challa, written and directed by Ryan Coogler, um, starring tons and tons and tons of people. Um, Letitia Wright, Lupita Young, Winston <laughs> Duke, Dana Guerrera, Angela Bassett, Martin Freeman, um, Dominique Thorne, um, plenty of other people. Uh, and newcomer... Dreyfus. He, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, oh gosh, I'm going to butcher this. Um, and introducing uh, Tanakh Huerta as Namor. So, Jose Tanakh Huerta Mejia. That's an mm-hmm. awesome name, by the way. Yeah, right? <laughs> uh, that's what he's credited as in the movie. His IMDb is listing. It's one of, you know, it's one of those different names. So, yeah, depending on where you see it, he has like four different names listed. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Like sometimes it's just Tanakh Huerta. Sometimes it's Tanakh Huerta Mejia. Sometimes it's Jose Tanakh Huerta Mejia. It's wild. So, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, um, again, completely spoil-free. Let's start off with a quick rating. Heath, did you like it, love it, hate it, dislike it, or think it's just okay? Don't hate me, internet. I think it's just okay. Maybe even on the low side of okay. Okay. I'm going to go with high side of like it. I think there's two things that make that keep me here, though. Um, this is by far not a perfect movie, but I had i had pretty low expectations for this movie in terms of how good it would actually be i mean i if i recall talking last week on the podcast and i've slept since then so don't quote me like i remember being incredibly interested in how kugler and co would handle t'challa's death bozeman's death but uh but not necessarily i i didn't i I didn't think i mentioned anything about the story because like you know of of introducing i mean I, i I like Namor as a villain, um, but um, called him Namor for sure. But uh, last <laughs> week, but the way the movie says is Namor, so that's fine and makes sense. Um, but I, I don't know that I was the the thing that I wanted was for this movie to pay respect to and to pay respect to to grieve and to start to move on from Chadwick Boseman's death um, to honor his legacy, but also not to linger on it. Um, Especially because if they wanted to linger on it, fine. Don't make any more movies with Black Panther. Easy. You know, have it be a one-off and have it be, you know, a highlight in the MCU and that's fine. But, you know, you made this movie, so that means you're going to move forward. So pay your respects and set it up in a way that makes sense. So very, very, very spoiler-free. What are some general reasons why you thought this movie was just okay? Sure. And I want to say something up front uh, before I start defending my position. Uh, I recognize I'm in the minority as of us recording this. This has an 84% certified fresh rating from the critics on Rotten Tomato with a 95% audience score on IMDb. This has a 7.4 out of 10 on Letterboxd. It has a 3.8 out of 5. So I am well aware that I am on in the minority here. And with that caveat, I still also want to stress, I don't think this is a bad movie. I didn't give this a negative rating. I didn't say this was bad. I think it's an average, okay movie. My biggest thing that I have to say about this film, and I, and uh, 
Aaron knows, I actually approached him about, I, I have things to say about this movie and I want to talk about it. So if you're willing to do a podcast, please bring me on. This is an amazingly powerful and emotional tribute to Chadwick Boseman. Separately, it is a wholly lackluster and underwhelming mess of a movie. That is my biggest contention with this movie. Everything that has to do with honoring Chadwick Boseman by, in the plot, honoring T'Challa is beautiful. It is heartfelt. It is powerful. Everything else feels quite sluggish. It The movie is overly complicated because Marvel tries to marvel the heck out of this and makes them put in so many characters and so many storylines and so many plot threads to seed for future television shows on Disney Plus and future movies that this thing becomes a mess. And again, you can just look this up on your own. This isn't a spoiler. This movie is almost two hours and 45 minutes long. That's This movie is 20 minutes shorter than Avengers Endgame. That's how long this movie is. It is it's, it's, it's getting towards the three-hour mark, and I think it's the, either the second longest or third longest Marvel movie ever made. And when you jam-pack this movie with so much stuff, it just becomes convoluted. It becomes hard to keep track of things. Not that it's impossible. Of course, it still narratively makes sense. But in terms of your emotional investment, it's just not there. You can't keep caring about all these different storylines and plot threads. And we'll get into which ones really work and which ones really, really don't in the spoiler section. But that's my biggest problem with this movie is that like every time this movie's about T'Challa and mourning and really this movie wanting to be more than just your standard superhero movie, it, it wants to be a movie about grief and absolution and moving beyond. And I think that's beautiful and very poignant and all of that works. But every time this movie tries to Marvel, it tries to Marvel so hard that it just takes away from all of those elements of grief, from all these beautiful performances from Angela Bassett, who is absolutely crushing it. And uh, Letitia Wright, who's also doing a fantastic job. Mm -hmm. Uh, I loved, and I'm already forgetting his name, even though I said it a million times. What was it? Tenoch Huerta as Namor. I thought he was tremendous. That stuff is great. Um, but this this plot is a mess. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of the things that, you say, that you're saying. It, it is for sure at least 20 minutes too long. Uh, at least. And I think you know, there's an argument that it's 40 minutes too long. For me, it's 40 minutes too long. Yeah. But yeah, keep going. At, at the very least, it's 20 minutes too long. At bare minimum, yes. Uh, I... I don't think I was as distracted by the future Marvel setup stuff. There's some moments definitely feel forced and some moments definitely feel, yeah, like, like MCU has got a timeline, but I was kind of surprised at how much this movie kind of just was able to stand on its own. I mean, we have certain characters returning from certain properties and then there's a, this is the origin story for a, a future Disney plus story, um, show. Um, I, I guess I didn't feel that as much. I just thought um, there's there's plenty, there's too much going on, even just for this being trying to be a contained story. It's not. There's there's lots to love about this movie, and there's lots to not love. And I I think as I think you're right as a movie, it doesn't quite hold up as well as it should. I I le- legitimately left the theater thinking I think I like this as much, not less or more than the first Black Panther. But I have never been very 
like into black into the original um i i thought that it was a really good movie a very important movie but ultimately like there was lots of things that i could bicker about i think i thought that one was a little too long as well and definitely the cgi was terrible <laughs> big big problem but lots of I don't think I feel that way now. I would say this is for certainly the inferior film to the original. But to me, again, with without as much of a love for the first Black Panther, because I know even lots of people that don't like the MCU really like Black Panther. Um, and people that like yes. the MCU consider it, you know, in the S tier. And I consider it in the, like, upper mid-range, you know? Um, like, And by that, I mean, like, relatively in the middle, but maybe on the higher side. I don't, I don't remember where exactly. But I like it a good amount. I definitely like the first movie more than what I've gotten to sit with it. Um, so the more I've gotten to sit with this film, um, the more I realize, no, the first one is better on so many times. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think the original film is significantly better than this one. Getting into some more not spoiler-free things, there are some technical elements of this film that I thought were really well done. Uh, I thought that a lot of the, cin- not all of the cinematography, but a lot of the cinematography was very beautiful that like there's this underwater birth scene that I thought was exquisite. This scene at a campfire on a beach that just looked very powerful with the sunset, but simultaneously some of the cinematography was really bad in particular in the first half of the movie. There are three important scenes, two of which are action scenes. One is the introduction of a major character that takes place at night where I don't know about your theater, but I couldn't see anything. Like it was horribly lit if lit at all like in almost complete darkness almost impossible to comprehend what was going on i don't know if it was directly in an effort in these action scenes to hide bad cgi but gosh it felt that way speaking of the cgi there were some scenes where it was clear that they got the bulk of the special effects budget in this movie and some of them looked beautiful way better than the first film but then there were still other scenes where i'm like oh these are still wet noodle people and they're just flailing around and they look like clay. So it was really bizarre to me. With that said, there were elements that I did love. Uh, I think the score and soundtrack of this movie is beautiful. All these rhythmic African drums meshing with like contemporary hip hop and R&B is like awesome. Ryan Coogler, please do that for forever. It's great. I also love the costume design. Like not only do you have the amazing Af- African motifs of Wakanda that we saw in the first film. It's all expanded now because there's an entire other culture in this movie of Mesoamerican people that is using all these like jade relics and like geometric shapes and like these feathered headdresses that just look so cool. And so like the costume design was great. Uh, I even wanted to shout out uh, Rihanna has a song in the post credit that is clearly going for a best original song nomination for the Oscars. Uh, I thought that was really well done. Yeah. So again, I don't want to say that I didn't like this movie or that I should say that I didn't, that I hated this movie or something like there are definitely elements of this movie. I enjoyed. There's even a couple action scenes, uh, a Namor. uh, I don't want to give away his abilities in case you haven't seen it yet, but, he has some cool powers and uh, watching him just go ham is really fun in some of the action sequences. Uh, so there's definitely stuff to like here. Uh, I think let's, let's go ahead and leave it there for spoilers uh, sure. or for spoiler free. I, I think, I guess I want to say one last thing. Um, this movie does a good job of, 
um, paying its tribute to Chadwick Boseman without beating you over the head with. Um, I thought this movie did a good job of uh, of saying, or at least attempting to tell a story and uh, like a, a story separate separate from T'Challa's death. I thought you know it. it it didn't feel like this movie was two hours and 40 minutes of, you know, lamenting Chadwick Boseman. It certainly has its moments, and there are certainly moments, scenes that should make you tear up. But ultimately, like, I think the movie did a really good job of just not making me, you know, completely mourn uh, I him would, for two and a half hours, right? I, w- I would actually disagree with that. I, I think this, I think that's actually one of the detriments of this movie, is that this movie is almost three hours of just mourning T'Challa, mourning uh, Chadwick. Uh, I think this movie would have been, and and again, I, w- I want to say this up front as well. I don't think Ryan Coogler or Kevin Feige could have done much better. I think this is pretty much as best you could have done in this scenario. Like they were in one of the most unenvious, unenviable positions in Hollywood. Like how do you continue, continue Black Panther after losing Chadwick Boseman, who's such an icon? Clearly they're going to keep making these movies. Marvel has a structured plan. They have to do certain events and the original black Panther was so iconic, so important to the black culture uh, and black identity. Uh, it was such a moneymaker just from a pure business pr- position. There's no way the house of mouse wasn't going to keep making more of these. So like we knew we were getting more. Uh, and so with that said, I think this is reasonably about the best you could do. But with that also said, supposedly this script had already been written and they had to adjust things on the fly after Chadwick had passed. They only delayed the movie for six months and they added all of the morning stuff to it, but almost everything else was still there. And that's where I feel this movie would have been better served if they tried to mourn him and appreciate him and respect him at the beginning and then tried to move on. And I don't think this movie does that because this movie very clearly bookends still with mourning Chadwick and then moving on and at the end of the film. And it makes the whole journey of the film about the grief and mourning process, which is again still heartfelt and beautiful but it does at least in my position act as a detriment of and i'll get into more in the spoilers but it acts as a detriment when there's just so many things going on in this movie while you're also trying to attach all these emotional grief heartfelt moments to it and in fact what ties into that in a big way is and i don't know if you noticed this and again this is still spoiler free but this movie is not very funny at least not in comparison to the original Black Panther or in comparison to traditional MCU films that are usually laden with more jokes and laughs. I think there's maybe like a handful of jokes in this whole movie. My theater hardly laughed at all. There were more jokes in the first 10 minutes of the first Black Panther than there were in this entire movie that's almost three hours long. And I think that's part of the what makes it feel like even when they're not directly talking about T'Challa and the grieving or mourning process, it still feels like the movie is doing that because the movie still has this kind of like depressing malaise tone to it throughout this whole thing. Like there's very little levity to break up the somber moments of this movie. Like the sense of sadness carries weight throughout so much of this runtime that when it's only broken up by like five to seven jokes in three hours, like that's just not enough. And like, I'm, I, I made this reference in, in my review and I wholeheartedly think this there, there are literally more jokes in the dark night and the dark night rises than there are in this movie. And people consider those to be dark comic book movies. Like, and, and I'm not even being funny there. Like I'm quite literally, there are more jokes in 
those two incredibly dark crime ridden Batman movies than there are in this movie and not even by a little bit, by quite a significant amount. So that's why I say, I, I think this movie did go a bit too far with its depressing tone and trying to mourn Chadwick, AKA Ch- T'Challa throughout the I whole guess, thing. I guess what I mean by my comment is this movie felt like it paid its respects um, to, to Chadwick and to T'Challa, but it seemed to be more about Shuri like coming into her own and figuring out her purpose and her identity um, in the wake of his death. I would agree with that. Like, as opposed to just a nation mourning for two and a half hours. Like it it seemed like, because he, he, there's a time jump of a year Mm -hmm. after T'Challa's death. So like we all like that, that's what I mean. Like there's been a year that has passed. So there has been, there has been lots of off screen grief, but they're, they're still dealing with it a week, a year later. So I guess that that's what I mean is it's, it's a little bit more Shuri figuring out her role and Angela Bassett, like being a leader and trying to hide the pain, but, um, but still do like serve her country her best. Um, and, Again, again, it just it felt more like the end stages of grief as the beginning stages of grief. I guess is more so what I mean. Like, like it, it just didn't beat me over the head, you know. Sure. So. And I would definitely agree with the Shiri part. In fact, I would go on to say that she's almost an entirely different character in this movie than she is in the previous film. She is. Like, if you remember the previous Black Panther, she's a wisecracking teenager who's like quoting memes. Like literally one of her most famous lines from the movie is her pointing at her brother's shoes and going, what are those? Like a literal internet meme. And like, and that is nowhere in this film. She is a completely different person. The death of her brother, the death, the loss of T'Challa completely changes her. And this is very much in many ways, her journey while it's also other people's journey as well, but it's centered on her and, and I agree. I, in that regard, I think it works very well. And that's what I was saying. Like the, the expression of, of grief and how these characters deal with it, how you see it from the perspective of a mother, from a perspective of a sibling, from the perspective of a, a lover. I think all of that is handled so well. It's, it's the lasting element of it throughout the entire film, the depressing nature of the film coupled with the incredibly cluttered storylines with so many different Marvel things going on that really detract from this movie, especially when it's almost three hours long. Yeah, you're, you're right. Shuri is definitely a, a different person, but I, I don't know. I guess you also have to lump in the events of Infinity War and Endgame to there as well. Uh, sure. and, so, and to me, Shuri has such little... I mean, she's um, snapped in, in, in uh, Infinity War. She's yes. one of the... one of She the, didn't experience those five years. Yep. Yeah, um, but she deals with the after, effect, after effects, and she's there... Um, on the last stages, uh, trying to to remove Vision's soul stone from his head. Uh, you know, she's she's part of that whole process, um, and and she's present in the end battle of Endgame. So I guess I'm also just thinking like it, it is it is one thing compounded against another, compounded against another, compounded against another. It's not, but this is definitely the thing that finally breaks her. But like yeah. you know, normal teenage development add on like a massive world tragedy. Um, and the pressures of being a superhero, especially, you know, after Wakanda commits to like being a world leader as opposed to a shadow, you know, at the end of Black Panther and then, you know, the events of Endgame and Charles death. So sure. let's move on to spoilers. I don't have too much to say, actually. Uh, but anyway, here it is, your official spoiler warning. Um, so spoiler. If, you haven't, spoiler. if you haven't seen the movie um, and you care about spoilers, Hop off now. There's nothing at the end of this episode. Just 
spoilers from here on out. So look, look, you easily cut off 20 or 30 minutes of this movie by taking out Martin Freeman and Julia Louis Dreyfus. There's no reason for them to be in this movie at all. And it none, really wastes none movie down. whatsoever at all. And in fact, I would go a step further and this is where I get to 40 minutes. Riri Williams and the Ironheart thing does not need to be here either. Like at all that the quote unquote scientist doesn't have to be her character. It could be a nameless whoever it could have been Martin Freeman if they really wanted it to. But I know she has a Disney plus show coming out. You could have saved her origin entirely for that show. Just like we didn't have anything about Miss Marvel before the Miss Marvel show. And and that worked Uh, or she Hulk before the she Hulk show. And that had varying degrees of success depending on who you talk to. But like you, you or, or Moon Knight is a better example. Like that show was received pretty well. We didn't know anything about Moon Knight before Moon Knight unless you were a comic book fan. Like the, there was no need to introduce her in this movie. Just like there was no need to continue with Martin Freeman and Julie Louise Dreyfus in this movie. If you cut out those three characters and all of their pretty irrelevant storylines if we're being completely honest like they have no large lasting effect on the story this movie is cut by 40 minutes easily and then what happens is our movie that is now two hours and 45 minutes is instead two hours and you know five minutes two hours 10 minutes and instead of us do setting up Ironheart and continuing with the people in the feds to set up thunderbolts those are now gone so the rest of the movie is literally just Morning T'Challa, set, uh, setting up Shiri as the new Black Panther, and commencing with the fight with uh, the culture war with the, the Talokan in Wakanda and the fight with Namor. That's it. That's the whole movie at that point. And damn, that sounds like such... Like, if that's just the movie, if it's just focusing on the grief and Shuri coming to terms with that grief and taking on the mantle of Black Panther while fighting Namor and the Talokan or the Talakanil, I think it's pronounced technically for the term of their people. God, that seems infinitely better to me, especially when you cut it down to a two hour and 10 minute runtime. Like that instantly bumps this up for me from a, it's just okay to a God, I, that's a high side of like to even maybe a low side of loved it at that point. Yeah. So as far as the Ruby Williams character, you, you can introduce her as the scientist character, but you don't necessarily need to set up the Ironheart stuff, but I guess I didn't mind it that much. I mean, it, it sure it, you could easily get away with some extra time, but I, I don't know. I thought I, I thought she was kind of the comic relief of this movie, like like Shuri was. So she brought a little bit more of a lightheartedness to to the movie, which, like you said, it needed more of. So I wonder if you if you cut that, like you cut all the humor essentially, or you just give it to another character. You can have someone else not named Riri. Like the Riri Williams Ironheart character doesn't need to be the scientist. The scientist could be whoever. They didn't yeah. have to make it this person that we're going to set up for their own TV show and make sure they get their own Iron Man kind of suit. The one that, yeah, the, either way, the one that makes me more upset is just the the Martin Freeman and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. I mean, we don't need it. We don't need either of them. They don't have any consequences on this movie. I mean, they were they were even less relevant than Riri. Like, well, because Martin William, Martin Freeman um, points. I don't even remember the character's name. But I don't care. Everett Ross. That's what it is. Yeah. Um, he directs them to Riri. Uh, but, yeah. but like, that's it. And then he's still around for the movie, but like completely useless other than to, to try to because the, the way the characters at least presented in the script is he's supposed to be the people that is on the Wakandan side trying to urge, you know, the UN yeah. to not attack Wakanda for, or not blame Wakanda for what happens on this oil rig. But he really doesn't get a chance to do anything because 
he has to keep it hush hush. So it's like you maybe maybe have the the scene of him running in the forest and the Wakandans, you know, come up to him and ask him, and then that's it. Like maybe just essentially a cameo experience, you know, uh, cameo. And I and I certainly. And I certainly well, didn't need the back and, and all forth. Their tech, like, how do they not? How are they not able to figure all this out on their own? Yeah, and I certainly didn't need the back and forth. That felt like a sitcom to me. Of like, oh yeah, no, we had the beads bugged the whole time. We knew every bit of your conversation. And oh, and Julia's also his ex-wife. They were married right. once. Like it, it's just like really like, <laughs> not everyone has to be connected that deeply. <laughs> like they could have just been coworkers together. Why? Why did? Like it just, it just feels so contrived. Uh, but it yeah, I, I, I don't feel like they were relevant at all and completely unnecessary to this whole film. <laughs> and I, again, I would even go so far as to say Riri is unnecessary to this film as well. I don't think her character is unnecessary. I think Ironheart will have an important part to play and I look forward to her show. Although not in that armor, that armor at the end was awful. I hope that because the Wakandans kept that <laughs> they designed better armor for her show. Cause that looked terrible, but uh, I didn't think it was terrible, but it also was like, I didn't like it. You know, I, I did not like that armor. And I also didn't like Okoye's armor either. The midnight angel armor. I thought that looked stupid as hell. Uh, some, sometimes things that work in a comic book just don't look good in real life. And that was a good example to me. Sure. Yeah. Speaking of Okoye, I really like um, her character's de- like path in this film um, because she is like struggling and trying to hold on. But then the, the moment that Angela Bassett just lashes out at her and demotes her um, and she's just like, I lost my son. You lost my daughter. And uh, like, like you have to be held responsible and accountable. And like she does, you know, mm-hmm. like absolutely. But then but then another member of the council speaks up and says, but she has, she not shown her loyalty by putting a, a spear to her husband's sword. And, and it's just like, I thought that was man. That was, was, that was probably the best scene of the movie, at least in well, terms of acting. I so thought, that's what I, I was going to say for sure. I thought, in acting. Angela yeah, I Bassett, thought Bassett just owned this movie. Uh, the two scenes in particular was one when she was addressing like the United Nations, like council yes. and bringing in like the, the arrested French mercenaries. And just like verbally bitch slapping everyone at that council. And then to that scene, yeah, where she's in the throne room confronting the council about Okoye's failures and saying like, have I not sacrificed everything myself? And like, if she gets I, there's already some buzz going about her the getting real for her. Yeah. I was going to say there's Easily. already some buzz going of her getting possibly awards consideration, which I would be totally down for her getting a supporting actress nom for this. And if they do, that is the clip they're going to use. 100% that is the yeah. the highlight reel clip they'll use at the Oscars. Yeah. She's so good in that scene. And again, I I really like that in Okoye. And then also how like she still has dealt with the concept. she's I think she, I, I would say her status as Dora Milaje is um reinstated but like in a in an upgraded capacity cuz she's got the Midnight Angel suit. I I guess but that's she, the one thing I didn't like about Okoye's story is it I loved the idea of her being demoted and it making her come to terms with her own actions and her own failures. But then Shuri just gives her a dope ass power suit and like none of it mattered. It, I mean, it I like feel it, like it, it, it kind of undoes her, up, her arc. Know? It does. It, it does a little bit, but I mean, there was a good chunk of time where she is a nobody in this movie. I mean, she still plays a role, but like nobody has asked her to play a role, you know? Yeah. Um, she's not been, you know, she's no longer the protector of the throne. Um, and I, yeah, I guess that was, I think it frees up the character to, to kind of be a little bit more freelance in the future. Yeah. Um, which I find 
whatever. Um, yeah, I, I uh, a couple other things I want to mention. I thought Winston Duke was great once again as Mbaku. I think he is hilarious, and if anything, he should get more of a comedy focused role if they wanted to have someone to do comedy because I think he does a great job at it. I'm also going to be interested to see where this movie goes because at the end, Shiri is not there to commence herself as the queen. Mm. And yeah. I think that's intentional. I, I wonder if a deal was struck that M'Baku is going to be the king of Wakanda and Shiri will be the Black Panther and they will separate those powers instead Man, of it just be, being one I'll person. I'll be here for it. <laughs> yeah, which I'd totally be down for M'Baku leading Wakanda and Shiri being the Black Panther. I think that'd well, be fun. Shiri's, Shiri's not a leader. We haven't seen her. No, she's leader. not. She she's never has a, been. She's a scientist and a, and a fierce soul, but not. But M'Baku is a man of the people. He is yeah. He always if anything Shiri doesn't like to be tribe. around people. She's kind of like a loner. So I would I would not be mad at all if they like have you know M'Baku can govern and Shuri can determine the you know, run her branch, but you know neither of them necessarily have any power over the other. You yeah, know? I'd be yeah. fine with that. I want to take a second to really dive in. I'm gonna I'm just gonna rattle them off here. This is this is what I talk about when I say there's too much stuff going on in this movie. So there was. We're dealing with the death of T'Challa and his funeral procession, which by the way, that funeral procession, especially like watching those people dance in the streets in slow motion, followed up by the Marvel studios logo in complete silence with just images of Chadwick literally almost had me just like melting in my seat. And there were many, many people crying in, in my theater at that time. I thought that was beautiful. And like, that's what I was talking about. Like if they had wrapped up Chadwick's, story the the morning of t'challa within like the first 20 minutes of this movie i think it would have helped so much what do you think what? about this i'm i'm, I'm stop you what do you think about this sure. what do you think of if they would have released a essentially the the morning chadwick part of this as like a 40 minute disney plus short and then the i don't the think sequel. that would have been good enough i think from a story's perspective that works perfectly from an audience respect position i don't think they could do that if you if you pushed this important of a thing off to Disney plus, I think it would have felt like a, a middle finger to the fans, especially to the black community. Like, Oh, you finally got an attachment to someone. Well, here's, here's you, you where you can mourn him on Disney plus for nine ninety nine a month. Like, I, I think that would have, I, that would have rubbed me the wrong way if they had done something like that. So but it's just, from a, a, just a thought experiment because it feels, from a narrative it feels like there are two movies in here that are battling one yeah, another from yeah. a narrative perspective that would actually make a lot of sense. Cause then you could just make this movie about Shiri already being black Panther from the beginning and just the conflict with Talokan and name Namor. Um, but again, from you, you can't do that to your fans. Um, I think that's where the problem would be. Um, but yeah, so I want to list all the things that this movie's doing. It is doing a morning of T'Challa. It is showing how Shiri moves past it as a sibling and becomes Black Panther. It is showing how Okoye gets past her failures. It is how M'Baku deals with potentially becoming a leader of the kingdom. It is how Nakia deals with being losing a, a lover and the father of her son, who we find out at the end, which was a beautiful mid credit scene. Uh, it's how the queen deals with the loss of her son. All of that is all revolving around the loss of T'Challa. So we're at six different character arcs already. Then simultaneously for Queen Ramunda, we're going to add that she's dealing with people trying to exploit her country for resources, which by the way, is literally the exact same plot as the first movie. So I thought that was redundant and kind of unnecessary, but whatever. 
Um, and then she's also going to deal with the loss of her daughter because Shuri's going to get kidnapped. So that's like seven, eight, maybe nine storylines we're doing with character growth just around the Wakandan people. On top of that, we're then adding the uh, Riri Williams character and the Ironheart storyline and sewing her origin for her show. On top of that, we're bringing back Martin Freeman as Everett Ross and Valentina Allegra de Fontaine. That name is just fun to say. Uh, Julia Louise Dreyfus character because we need to further connect them so that we can set up Thunderbolts, which is coming out here in a couple years. We are then introducing an entire other unknown culture. We have to fully describe who they are, their origins as a people, the Talo Kanil, where they came from in Mesoamerica, how they've been surviving for hundreds of years underwater. We have to explain their powers, which even the movie forgets to fully do that because on one hand, they're like, oh yeah, they breathe underwater. That's cool. And they have this awesome siren call, by the way, like that was dope, like making people mesmerized to jump to their death. But then at the same time, there's this moment on the bridge where they're like, oh, they're immortal. Like I stabbed them and they died, but then they stood up like zombies, like it was nothing. And, but then that's never brought up again, literally ever the rest of the movie. They never even mentioned that. So like, we don't even fully understand their powers because the movie doesn't have time for all this crap. On top of that, we have to deal with Namor himself, who's the leader of the Talakanil and everything that he can do and he has to mention on an occasion and kind of uh, see the fact that we're going to get an x-men movie because he's the first mutant not the first mutant chronologically but he's the first mutant that is mentioned in marvel comics lore and i think he's the second mutant now in mcu lore because i think they officially said miss marvel was a mutant in her show so now we're setting up the x-men and then we still have to do the actual battle of Wakanda and the Talakanil versus the, the Wakandans. And we have to have this huge fight on this boat. And like, there's just way too much shit in this movie. And that's what drove me nuts as I'm watching it in the theater. And especially because I'm normally not the person that feels the weight of these kind of movies. Like Avengers Endgame, that was my jam. That was 20 minutes longer than this movie. And it felt like a breeze. I had no problem with it. But that was because it was all a pretty straightforward storyline. The first act is they have a problem and then they realize time travel is the solution. The second act is they figure out how to do time travel. And then the third act is a giant ass fight. And that's it. Whereas this is trying to do so many different storylines and things that it actually like started to make a lulls in the movie because again, you're not invested in some of these. Like, like you and I both agreed, we're not invested in Martin Freeman and Julia Louise Dreyfus. We didn't care when they were on the screen. We cared about the morning of T'Challa. So it happens that these lulls create this time where like the weight of the movie just drags on you, especially because as I mentioned earlier, there's like hardly any humor. So there's nothing even to break up like the monotony of these like depressing moments, these sad stretches of runtime. So that th almost three hour weighted movie, that two hours, 45 minutes, that felt so long to me, so much longer than the three hours from Avengers Endgame. And that's the, that's the biggest part of this movie that just drives me nuts where I'm like, there's just too much stuff here. They had to cut this and, and I can't forgive the movie for that. Like no amount of, of heartstrings being pulled for the loss of Chadwick Boseman can make up for the fact that this is just a structurally flawed script from a narrative perspective. Let me ask you a question. Does the movie explain um, how T'Challa dies? Not, they don't like literally say that it's cancer, but yes, at the beginning they say that it's, they say that it's an uncurable disease. Yes. That's, that's so, really what we get. That it's so an it, uncurable disease that even the science of Wakanda and the power of vibranium can't fix. So I, 
I just didn't know if it not that it like it doesn't really matter either because the the the, the first scene where it, where we see Shuri trying to last minute save T'Challa as mm-hmm. opposed to being by his side is very well done. Yes. But it, it but it's one of those that like they move on from it and it's just like, "Oh, okay. Cool. Like unknown disease. Got it. I'm I'm good with that." But yeah. then it seems like later in the movie where Shuri makes the the Black Panther potion again, the Black Panther um the herb. heart the the heart-shaped herb yeah yeah like where she makes the herb and it's correct again it almost seemed like making the herb would have saved him well that's what she was trying to do at the beginning of the movie if you remember yes but i mean like it it almost so i I just didn't know like does the black panther have to ingest the heart-shaped herb every several years or is it like if the black panther gets injured then they can just re-ingest the herb and it would you know help or whatever but because they didn't have the herbs anymore she needed to to like read. So I'm gonna I'm gonna be completely it. honest with you. I think the screenwriters just messed up because he was already Black Panther at that point. He already had that herb in him, and he already had those powers and those healing capacities. And I don't know if they just forgot that or what, because at least as far as we know, you can't get a double dose of the heart shaped herb. Like it doesn't do anything extra for you, but that's essentially what they were trying to do is yeah. She was trying to make another heart shaped herb to feed him so that it could cure him. But again, he already had that in him. That's the same herb that he had. He'd gotten at the end of the first movie, black Panther that, you know, helped him fight Killmonger. He had had the black Panther powers ever since then all the way through like infinity war and Endgame and all that. So yeah, no, that's just, that's just literally the script writers messing up. That's It's just one of those that like, I felt like the movie was just like, we're not explaining it. We're doing this unknown illness as to not harp on it. Yep. Deal with it. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. I can respect that. And then later by Shuri making the herb, uh, it almost seemed like the herb again could have saved him. And I was like, this yeah. is confusing. Well, and- yeah, especially because if you go back to the beginning of the movie, that's specifically what she was trying to do. She was trying to make the herb again with like strains of his DNA to figure out how to recreate it. But she couldn't because she had like the wrong vibranium code. And then she got the code off of the, 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 the like bracelet from the telekineal. It was, it was weird. I I don't know if I buy that mumbo jumbo at all, but yeah, it it is weird that they're like, Oh, we need to make the herb so he can survive, but he already has the herb in him. So how would that make a difference? I I was just confused on it. And I was just like, I just want to like understand. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of is what it is. One other thing I do want to mention that I actually did really love is I love the depiction of Namor throughout this. So Namor, um, for those who don't know, in the comics was made in 1939. Aquaman from DC Comics was actually made two years later in 41. They're like the same character. In the comics, Namor is from Atlantis, literally just like Aquaman. His, the, he's the king of the Atlantean people. They're the same. They're they're fish people. They talk to fish. <laughs> like They're the same character. But I love the recreation of Namor in this movie. I love the Mesoamerican culture. Uh, I I will admit slight bias here. I personally find like Mayan culture and Mayan architecture to just be fascinating, but I just thought it was so cool. I like the, the beautiful feathered headdresses, the, the Jade jewelry. Uh, I thought it was just so neat. So that was a lot of fun. I actually found myself in many cases, actually, and I know the movie didn't want me to do this, but I was rooting for Namor in several parts. I found his story as the antihero to be quite interesting specifically because, and again, I mentioned this earlier, the movie does the same plot as the first movie where it's all about like protecting your country from colonizers who are trying to exploit your country for resources. 
I don't know why they did the same thing over again, but at least this time it had a slight spin on it in that the Talokan works, the Talokanil were experiencing the same thing as the Wakandans. And I liked the anti-hero spin on it that Namor put of like trying to point out to Shiri, like, why are we the bad guys? Like you, you felt the exact same way you were trying to protect Wakanda and vibranium from people. We're just trying to do the same thing. So why are we bad? And you're the good guys. Uh, I also thought it was really interesting, especially when Namor pointed out to her, like you specifically yourself said that you wanted to watch the world burn. How is this any different? You know, like now granted Shuri later comes to the realization that that's not the right path, but still like that kind of anti-hero morally gray position is really the first kind of character. Like we've had like that in the MCU, like pretty much in the MCU, you've either, you're either a good guy or you're a bad guy. And Namor is the first one that's not that. And so I found him to be way more interesting. I loved going to Talakan and seeing that city. I loved the architecture. I loved them watching, playing the Mayan ball game. And I loved watching, uh, or I loved even like the parallels and like how he was all about isolationism when the Wakandans are about globalism. But uh, I loved watching his combat. The my favorite action scene of the movie was when the Talakanil assault Wakanda, and Namor is just owning. He is throwing water grenades, making things explode, slicing up Wakandan ships with his spear. He he's using his feathered ankles to like jump around through the sky like he's hopping on clouds. Like I I don't know why I just thought that that was the coolest action scene of the movie, even more so than the final scene. Uh, on the boat, which I actually thought was kind of lame. Uh, I don't know if you felt the same thing. That, uh, that boat it wasn't was, as cool as the attack on Wakanda. No, I, I didn't think it was as cool at all. But uh, I, I really loved Namor. I loved this interpretation of him. And man, I hope he gets his own movie or something soon. I want to see more of that character like yesterday. <laughs> yeah, one of the th- it's one of my biggest positives of the movie. I really like Namor's motivation. I mean, you mentioned that um, it's it's a lot of the same... Um, like sh- struggles and conflicts um, between you know the first movie and this movie, um, the Wakandans versus uh, Namor's people. But um, I think having having a villain and understanding their motivation is crucial um, to, yep. to 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 being a memorable villain. And Namor is now up there with one of the more memorable ones. Uh, Agreed for me. And it's I feel like I understand him so much more than like eighty five percent of the villains in the MCU. Yeah. Well, and it's it's interesting though because you're talking about like isolationism versus uh, uh, globalization, globalism. but uh, but but the difference is Wakanda has more vibranium. I, I get the feeling that um, that the well, I don't even think we know who has more. We just know that each of them has some. I I get the sense that the Wakandans have a lot, and Namor's people has a little. Okay, but that but it's the only in the rest of the world and. They're 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 not really using it for any different purposes. Like if like they're not harvesting, so like they don't really have like resources to give the world. I mean, other than I guess they could give the ability for people to leave, live underwater. Um, <laughs> but like like they don't really have things to offer like the Wakandans do. And so I totally I think, well, sympathize I think what with their things them. to offer would be biological, and that's why it doesn't sound as important at front because like Wakandan stuff is technological, it's scientific, it's outside the body. But like the Talakanil, they're biological. Like it's not just Namor that has powers. Every single one of them had super strength. Every single one of them had agility. Every True. single one of them had the ability to breathe underwater. Like the, for whatever reason, the plants 
that they ingested at, like 400, 500 years ago when they went underwater that affected all their DNA so that all their kids it affected their DNA as well. And so like all of them now have these insane abilities or like that regenerative stuff that we saw on the bridge where they like literally can't even die apparently. <laughs> yeah. I just, I thought it was one of those where I understood his motivation. And like you said, I was even like on Namor's side because, and, and like, look, all he wants is one scientist that has the capacity to destroy their culture <laughs> to destroy his, yeah, to destroy his culture. And all he wants to do is kill the scientist. And look, there's easy, there's, it's a simple method and a simple solution for his problem. Uh, you know, other, other than, you know, and you could be like, Hey, just please leave us alone. Don't do these titanium harvesters anymore. But like, that's also, that's more of a risk, you know, like whatever. Like I, I totally understand him at times agree with him. Uh, yeah. And, and, and again, it's, it's the, a the really interesting is, parallel. Yeah. Cause the argument is what Wakanda does is virtually no different. We saw in the first movie that Nakia would go out, on missions around the world as a spy or like uh t'challa's uncle like they had spies out in the real world we we see them in the first movie go to a mission in china where they destroy a casino and like people die like they wakanda is not opposed to killing people to protect wakanda so why yeah. is so why is again that's why i said like why is namor the bad guy he's literally doing the same thing that they're doing but because now it's against them they perceive him as the bad guy and that's what i found so interesting about him and his character and his culture I wanted to give another shout out to Huerta. I thought he was awesome. If Bassett's my number one of this movie and she easily is, he's my number two. I thought he was great as Namor. Uh, I, I want to see more of him <laughs> like now. If you're up for it, if you don't have any more about this movie and if you do, then obviously go to town. I'm, I'm pretty done on this movie, but I'd like to talk about the MCU and phase four in general, because this is the end of phase four. And I'd like to talk about where we are with things, if you're cool with that. I don't feel like I have the capacity to do that tonight. <laughs> okay. But I will say, this is a this has no connection to anything else that really makes Phase 4 uh, a very unenthusiastic end and a very muddled and confusing end. I do have two more things to say about the movie. Sure. But, but ultimately, it, Phase 4 as a whole is a dud, um, and this... <laughs> does not feel like a finale in even the way that the rest of the films have felt like a finale. I, th I think probably the better finale of phase four would be, um, multiverse no of madness. If picking a movie, I, no way home could do it, but multiverse of madness feels like it opens the door for what phase five is going to be, um, yeah. more. So, uh, that's the, if I were to pick a film, that would be the one yeah. that I would pick, I, but ultimately I, I, I will drag on about it, but I'll, I'll just copy. I, I think this is easily the worst phase of the MCU now, and I don't even think it's close. The, no, this is just the, this is this is just a mess, and I'm glad it's over. And I'm still looking forward to Phase Five. I'm still a fan of the MCU, but th this was loaded with questionable products, and uh, I hope that they can right the ship because Phase Four has left me worried. Uh, I think they will right the ship, especially because the Comic Con panel, like. I can at least now see a vision of where they're going. And even looking back at phase four of MCU, I don't know where they're going. Um, I can't see, Oh yeah, this was definitely needed because it got us here. Like black widow is still a nothing movie. And uh, yep. most of the shows uh, save Loki are kind of nothing movies. Eternals is still, what the hell are they going to do with that? You know, yep. um, like the, yeah, you're right. It's, it's a dud. It's easily the worst phase, but at least I can see a plan and I can, and I can understand the plan. But even if you showed me the plan of phase four, five and six at the start of phase four, 
I'd have been like, I don't see it, at least for Phase 4. Um, and especially you look at even comparing WandaVision to Doctor Strange, like th- those two stories conflict each other. And then, you know, the mess of changing Spider-Man and Doctor Strange to make the timeline fit, it, it's bad. Um, the two things that I wanted to mention, uh, the other two things, it, you touched on it earlier, but there's some really cool powers that uh, Namor's people have that are that don't really seem to have any sort of structure and rules and seem to just only be used when Brian Coogler wants to show you something cool. Like the siren call is used at the beginning and then it's used um, during the attack on Wakanda. But the siren call is never used in the last battle. And what a, no. it, easily you could have just did the siren call and made the, Wakanda and then they just win the and it's the, <laughs> that they win. Right. Um, yeah. Or Namor could have used it on, um, on Shuri on their one-on-one. Like there's, there's literally like, it, 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 it seemed, and then the whole resurrection thing, it happens once in the whole movie, and you're just like, okay, fine. And then there's, um, there's, there's plenty of other like abilities that you're like, oh, this is really cool. And for that reason, I would like to see more of Namor and his people, uh, to see their powers and to continue their story. Um, yeah, you know, I, Namor is one of those characters that is sometimes anti hero, and sometimes he's on the Avengers, and sometimes he's being fought by the Avengers. You know, he's kind of an all over the place guy, and I think this movie did a good job of kind of putting him in the middle you know to where i could see him being on you know the avengers team to fight you know kang uh but then i could see you know other people having to to fight him you know i could see that happening Uh, i I just him fighting kang as easily i could see him like raising an army of of people to like try to destroy the surface world like sure yeah it it's just it's just one of those things that um he had a lot of cool powers and I feel like they were introduced, uh, but they were very inconsistent in how they were used and when they were used. And, uh, and then the other thing is I mostly wanted to ask you, um, there is a very big cameo in this movie from Michael B. Jordan. What do you think about that scene? That's hard. Cause on the one hand, I love Michael B. Jordan. I think he's such an amazing talent and I love watching him on my screen for pretty much anything. But on the other hand, that felt so forced to me. That just felt like we're we're trying to. It really should have been Queen Ramonda that she saw in that vision. I I don't see her seeing Killmonger at all. She virtually had. You can go back to the first movie. She virtually had no interaction with Killmonger. Like I I just I don't see her coming to her having him in her vision of her ancestors. Like it it just. It just really felt like they wanted a way to bring back Michael B. Jordan and the Killmonger character and create some extra conflict that wasn't really there. Because I never for a second, because like the movie tries to make you believe that she's just as she's going down, like she's going down the dark side. It felt like a Star Wars thing. Like watch where you're going. You're 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 being manipulated by the dark side of the force and you'll you'll end up just like Killmonger. At no point in this movie did I think she was even close to becoming someone like Killmonger. And I, it just felt off to me. Now, again, uh, I like Michael B. Jordan and he, he makes movies better. So it was cool seeing him on the screen, but I don't think it made sense for the actual film. I it's, I wanted to ask first because I have virtually a both similar and opposite opinion to, than you. I think, man, we want to talk about performances in the movie, too. He's, he's in the movie for like 45 and a half seconds, but he's, <laughs> he's so like there good. for like three minutes tops and he's awesome. <laughs> he's so good in every single second. It, great cameo. You know, if, if they gave out Oscars for cameos, boom, he's, he's up there. He's, he's winning for me this year, you know, mm, never mind. Val Kilmer from Top Gun Maverick, but he's a close second. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
so I I thought it felt so forced at the beginning because first of all, I just I respected them for not pulling a CGI T'Challa or even like trying to CGI voice him and not actually show him. I respect them for not trying to mimic him in any way. It, it, I, I do. I thought immediately it felt forced. It almost felt like, oh, this should be T'Challa, but they're not going to do that for you know, um, respect sake or for legacy sake or anything. They're not going to use his likeness. Um, I mean, although yeah. Disney has literally done that before, but uh, you know, like Rogue One and um, even the Mandalorian is different because Mark Hamill's alive. But <laughs> um, it's it's one of those that um, I thought it felt so forced at the beginning. And then as the scene progressed, I thought it was a really interesting parallel. Now, I, you're right. They don't really have much interaction in the first movie. Um, but at least the path, the, the movie tries to explain, you see the person that you want to see, or you see the person that like most identifies with where you are. And Killmonger was, in essence, vengeance. And Shuri just wanted vengeance because this is after the queen dies. And of course, she's still grieving the loss of her brother and probably still grieving the loss of her father as well. You know, that wasn't that long ago. There's plenty of there's plenty of grieving going on. There's plenty of things that uh, um, that Shuri's got to be wrestling with and struggling with. And it kind of does feel a little Star Warsy, but it almost feels like it was you know, it was Shuri's resisting there and her her saying you know, Killmonger's trying to urge that on and say you know, he's playing he's playing the devil on one shoulder. Um, and Shuri's like, I'm nothing like you. And he's like pointing out like, no, you're kind of exactly like me and you want the same things that I wanted. So I, my, my only counter to that is Namor was already doing that. Namor is already doing that throughout the entire movie saying like, no, we're the same. Like we both want the world to burn. Like we're the same. And, well, so, and, so and I think it would have just been more emotionally impactful if it was Ramonda. But no, I, again, I, I do understand what you're saying though. Well, so how, how about this then? If N- Namor is is doing that, um, is kind of playing that chip on your shoulder, that devil on your shoulder, and you know, you should want this, you know, vengeance, um, and all these, and, and why is what you know I'm doing to you different than what you've done to the American people or the world people? Mm-hmm. But it, maybe it contextualized it a little bit more because Killmonger is for sure the villain of Black Panther. Now, a villain that we can relate to and understand, absolutely. A killer that we can see as, in many ways, justified. Yeah, kind of, for sure. Mm-hmm. But Shuri still sees him as the villain, absolutely. The nation of Wakanda sees him as a villain, absolutely. So maybe seeing Shur- maybe Shuri seeing Killmonger and saying you're you're just like me, kind of puts it in more like definitely, like this is definitely the wrong path. You are for sure a bad guy. Um, so yeah, and that's anyway and. And I, I don't mind the, the extra context, um, so I'm, I'm still okay with it. Uh, one thing that you did remind me of, I do have one more thing to add, and this is uh, going back to what we were talking about in the non-spoiler section about how I thought too much of this lingered on T'Challa and Chadwick and where the movie would have been better served if it was resolved earlier. Because this movie closes with a really powerful scene with Shuri on the beach throwing away her funeral garb into a fire, a funeral pyre to signify that she's moving on from the mourning process and her grief. And in that moment, we see a ton of images and flashbacks to T'Challa. At no point in that entire sequence do we see Queen Ramonda. Mm. And this is where 
I get pissed off because this is the movie making a movie decision for the audience instead of the movie making a narrative decision for the movie at in no way, shape or form. I don't care how attached she was to her brother at no, in no way, shape or form. Is she thinking about her brother more? I'm not saying she's not thinking about him at all, but more than her mom in that moment in real life. Her brother had died over a year ago. That was tragic. It was awful. The loss of Chadwick Boseman, awful. We all hated that. But in terms of this story, her mom literally died a week ago. Her mother, who she had a great relationship with, who she loved, and and she's not not even for a second is her face thrown up there in that scene as her thinking about her mother. Like that's the stuff that I'm just like, this is a movie. And it takes me out of the film because I'm like, no, she would think about her mother in that moment. She wouldn't only be thinking about her brother. You can have her still thinking about her brother. You can still use this as a swan song to T'Challa if you really want at one last time as a book into the film. But you can also use this moment to realistically show like how much Shuri has now lost in this transitional period where she's not only lost her brother now she's also lost her mother the the queen of wakanda and the movie doesn't do that and that pisses me off because that's that's the movie admitting it's a movie that's the movie making a nonsensical narrative decision to placate an audience and that's the kind of stuff that makes me mad and that's the kind of stuff and it happened at multiple points through the movie but that's just the most egregious example where i'm just like no this movie lingered on the loss of T'Challa and therefore by proxy, the loss of Chadwick too much that it affects the narrative of the story. I am not going to disagree with you at all on that. I just didn't notice it, but you're completely right. Uh, My maybe only counter to that would be, I I still think she has a lot of grieving and mourning and accepting to do before she can move on from the queen's death. I mean, if she's only just now getting over T'Challa's death and she only burns one of the funeral garbs, which means she has two, um, one for the mother and one for Chadwick. So I that would be my only thing is, is she's got probably still more healing to do if she was still mourning and grieving one while the other happened. But you're right. That is a movie making a movie call. And it it is. You you are right. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm completely yeah. agreeing with you. And, and again, I'm even saying I'm cool with her burning only one funeral outfit. I'm cool with her signifying that she's moving past T'Challa's death, but you need to give some kind of tribute to Ramunda in that moment. You need to show her thinking about her well, and the movie doesn't. Especially because then it cuts to credits and it's a really, really incredible cut to credits. And then there's a really great, and then there's a really great like mid credit scene, scene, which is yeah, also it, it, not it about Ramunda. And it's also again about T'Challa, which again, it was still a powerful and moving scene. And that's that, again almost this this is my whole point with the movie this movie is a brilliant emotional tribute to chadwick and it's a lackluster meh average movie like it keeps making emotionally impactful decisions at this the consequence of the narrative of the film like that seeing nakia come out and being like this is this is your nephew t'challa was a father that's awesome that's beautiful i love that that's not what this movie needed at that point, in my opinion. I, I really liked the scene. I, I think if you would have had the queen in that montage, it might have played a little better because your your final note could have been just Chadwick, you know. Yeah. Um, but be, but being paired with the montage, I get I get what you're saying, and I agree with you. It didn't bother me as much, but 
personally, I, I'm of the opinion, I don't think there should have been any mid-credit or post-credit scene. I think the campfire and her mourning T'Challa, that should have just, the fade to black, that should have ended it. Like, that should cut. Like, real credits were done. Like, this is one of those few examples. I know Marvel loves their mid-credits and post-credit things, but, like, like read the room. You don't need it this time. <laughs> I remember thinking how unnecessary it seemed. Like, I was very moved and touched by it, but also it's just like... yeah this T'Challa is not going to be the new Black Panther. This T'Challa exactly. is not like, they're not going to just redo T'Challa in 18 years and say, this is T'Challa's son that has grown up and is now essentially T'Challa. Like this isn't, they're not going to do that. Uh, just retell the story, you know, with more stories from T'Challa, you know? Absolutely. Uh, and again, that that's the exact same way I felt. I was like, this is beautiful. This is moving. I love it, but this is entirely unnecessary. There was no point to this. And it's going to lead to nothing. It's not like, like you said, we're not getting a Black Panther movie where this little boy is going to play T'Challa Black Panther in 15 years when he's 18 to 20 years old. That's not going to happen. So like, why are we doing this? Well, so I, I did see something I, cause I, cause I Googled to see if there was going to be any more credits afterwards. And I came across this article. I can't see it at the, at the moment. Uh, does that, I remember it being something that essentially explained explained and said, like, sure, it doesn't mean anything that doesn't set up for the future, but we're we're left with hope. Uh, it was an IGN article. I just found it. Uh, let's see. I want to read it now. That was great. Great radio right here. <laughs> the, the article essentially just said, like, we're left with a feeling of hope. We're left with a feeling of, like, his legacy is carried on. We're left with a with a feeling of like T'Challa's still here, but he's not here. Like, and I was like, it gave me a different perspective. Um, I think, like I said, I think it was from IGN. If you want to read, it was a pretty short article. Just Google does black band of Wakanda forever has post credit scene. But I, again, it, it just kind of made me feel like this isn't Marvel trying to set up a Marvel property, a future Marvel property. This is just a, a nice way to kind of bookend and, and almost because so much of the movie has been mourning and grief and sadness. It just kind of, leaves it on a high note you know but also the campfire scene does that too anyway (laughs) we've talked plenty about this movie and plenty about all the other things uh heath if people want to hear more of your movie thoughts we're gonna check you out yeah you can find me on letterboxd uh search the one heath bar or heath lynch you can also find me on sift pop and you can find me on shortboxed if you like comic books and a couple other things and uh letterboxd and twitter schweik castle for me um and uh, uh next week Back to the regular format, Robert will be on to uh, talk about Sherlock Jr. as part of our GOATS segment. We'll do that next week. Uh, and then next month will be a TV catch-up, um, like it was supposed to be this week. <laughs> Kristen is on the schedule for there, but since I was supposed to have Alice on this week, um, I'll see if Alice wants to can tag along for that. Um, so maybe she's on that, maybe she's not. I don't know, I'll have to talk to her. Uh, but that'll do it for this week. Thanks for sticking around. We'll see you next time.